Welcome to the pastor's class from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, especially to those who are listening on KFUO radio. I want you to remember that today is April the 18th, 2021. There's going to be a test on this after a while. So listen carefully. It's April 18th, 2021. We're still in Romans chapter 8. And I would invite you to join me in a word of prayer. Almighty God, whom to know is everlasting life, grant us your Holy Spirit that we might see and know your Son Jesus, our risen Savior, who is the way, the truth, and the life, so that we might follow him and walk steadfastly in the way that leads to everlasting life that nothing in all creation could separate us from your love. Bless our study of your holy word today. Grant us true wisdom. Strengthen our faith that we might stand firm in the midst of the trials and temptations and all the groaning of this world, that we might be bold in our confession of the truth and compassionate in our service and zealous in our witness that others might see and know Jesus as their Lord and Savior too. So we come in the name of our Savior, in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Yes, we are still in Romans chapter 8. This is the third week that we've been studying Romans chapter 8, and we aren't going to finish up today. There's still so much that we need to cover but as we've been saying, there are still, there, there is still no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. We are still adopted sons, children of God through holy baptism. Since we are children of God, we are also heirs, co-heirs with Christ, our risen Savior. And all that he accomplished on Easter morning is ours as well as his brothers and sisters. The resurrection, the life, the forgiveness, the joy, the hope, the glory of Easter is ours too. And so, as we've been saying for weeks, we are Easter people. And that dominates who we are and how we live. Today we turn to Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 24, and follow along as I read verses 24 through 27. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Note what sounds like a confusing back and forth between the words seeing and hoping. And as he says here, who hopes for what he already sees? When we see something, we know it, we possess it. When we hope for something, we can't see it. And so Paul is picking up on these two words, seeing and hoping, and he's playing them against one another to help us understand our relationship and our salvation. Notice he says, we were saved in hope. Were, it's already accomplished. Already saved. But not yet saved, because we still hope. Now, hope is an interesting word, because if you look at the Old Testament and and see how the word hope was used, it's always connected with faith. Think of Abraham. 
We can go back to chapter 4, where he spent a great deal of time talking about Abraham. And remember, he said that Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. God made a covenant with Abraham. God said, leave your father's house and your kindred, and I want you to go to the land that I will show you. And there I will bless you, and I will give you that land as your inheritance. And there I will give you an heir, a son. And through that son, all of the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And so Abraham, in faith, obeyed, and he went. And he traveled through that land. But you know, he never possessed that land as his own. He was always looking forward. He was always hoping. But he never owned that land himself. Abraham was an old man. And he still didn't have a son. But he held on to the promise. And he hoped. And he was 100 years old when God fulfilled that plan. That promise and gave him the son Isaac. So Abraham was able to see. He saw the promised land. He traveled through the promised land, but he never possessed that land as his own. And so he was always yearning. He was always hoping for what was to come. He was always looking for the fulfillment of the promise that God had made to him. We live with a paradox. And we Lutherans are good at paradoxes. Things that seem to be contradictory are in fact both true. And so the paradox is, we who were saved, past tense, still long for the day when we will be saved. We were saved, and yet we hope for the day when we will be saved. Paul said the same kind of thing back in Romans chapter 5, verse 9. He says, Since therefore we are now, now justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. We have been justified, but we will be saved from the wrath of God. When we see that day, when we see our Lord Jesus all of our hopes are going to be fulfilled and our faith will become sight. Hope and sight playing back and forth. We live with both. On that day when we see our Lord Jesus return, there will be no more faith. On that day when we see Jesus return, there will be no more hope. It'll all be fulfilled. St. Paul said, you know, there are three things that last. There's faith and hope and love, but when we see our Savior Jesus return, there's no longer going to be any faith. There's no longer going to be any hope. It's all going to be ours. But love, love remains. And that's why in 1 Corinthians 13, he tells us that the greatest of these is love. In the meantime, we're hoping, and yet we're not seeing. And again, seeing is used here three times in these verses, 24 and 25. This passage is very similar to the thought that St. Paul had in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. For those of you who want to check it, it's verses 17 through 18. Paul writes there, For this light momentary affliction, this suffering that we're experiencing now, is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal question is, can we trust our eyes? When we look around at the world today, can, can we always believe what we see? You know, there are all kinds of optical illusions. 
There are all kinds of magic tricks that will, will twist our thinking about what we see. St. Paul is talking in these passages about the suffering that we see in the world around us right now. What we see is not what we will receive. We will be filled with this hope in the meantime as we wait for the fulfillment of God's promises when hope will disappear and we will see our Savior face to face. Back and forth, seeing and hoping. St. Paul says, in the meantime, we wait. We are waiting with patience. In the midst of what we see in the world around us, in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the sorrow, in the, the midst of a sinful world, we are waiting with patience for the fulfillment, even as Abraham waited for God to keep his promises to us. But God has also given us a down payment. We don't have to wait for all of this on our own. Because he says in verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. The Spirit helps us. Remember back to John 14, the upper room on the night before Jesus died. The disciples are overwhelmed, thinking that Jesus was going to go away and leave them on their own, leave them orphans. But he said, I will give you another helper. Kind of a unique word back in John 14. The, the word is paraclete, parakletos. And a, a helper is literally one who stands by your side. It's kind of like the defense attorney who stands by your side in the court of law and pleads your case on your behalf. The spirit of truth, Jesus called him. He stands beside us in all of our weakness and he helps us as we deal with what's going on around us. For he says, we don't know what to pray for as we ought. We don't know what God's will is. We don't know God's plan or purpose for the things going on in the world around us, the things that we can see. Jesus taught us to pray, Thy will be done. Is that a cop-out? You know, sometimes I think we, we Christians pray, and we ask God for something, and we reach that point where we, we know we've got to wind the prayer up, and so, if it be thy will, and we walk away, and that gives God an out, and gives us an out. Because, well, if God doesn't answer this prayer, it must not be his will. That's not what Jesus was teaching us. Thy will be done. Now, we know what God's will is when it comes to things eternal, when it comes to things spiritual. We don't have to add those words, thy will be done, because we know from Scripture what God's will is. But when it comes to earthly things and material things and the blessings that we see in this world, we don't know what God's will is. And so we always pray if it be thy will. Have you ever had a situation where you didn't know how to pray or what to pray about? On September 11th, the pastors of Iowa District West were meeting in a, in a pastor's conference in Ames, Iowa. Before the conference started that morning, reports were already coming in of first one plane crashing and then another plane crashing. The topic of the day was supposed to be stewardship. But it was clear that people, these pastors, were deeply troubled 
by the news that kept coming in as buildings collapsed and, and the, the, the tragedy was unfolding. And so the pastors were, knew that they were going to have to go home, and many of them couldn't wait to go home because they knew that they were going to have to be with their people that night. And they were going to have to say something, and they were going to have to do something to lead their people through this national tragedy. And so we put the program to the side, and we allowed pastor after pastor to come to the microphone and to speak a a familiar word of Scripture, a word that brought them comfort, a word that they planned to take back home with them and share with their people. And one after another, they prayed. And it was clear as, as it continued to unfold that day that none of us knew what was going to happen. Have you ever been in that position where you really didn't know what to pray for? Have you ever been confused? Have you ever prayed with impure motives? You wanted something so much that you prayed and prayed and and God didn't seem to be answering or God answered in some other way and you became angry with God in the process? It's hard to pray, thy will be done. But the good news of what Paul is saying to us in in this verse is that the Spirit helps us even in those times when we don't know what to pray for. The Spirit knows the will of God because He is God. The Spirit pleads for us. In fact, he says, the spirit groans with unspeakable groaning. Remember we we said earlier, or Paul said earlier, that all of creation is groaning? As it tries to figure out the difficulties that are going on in the world around us? And then Paul says, we ourselves are groaning as we see things unfolding around us? And now he says, even the spirit groans. The Spirit groans with incomprehensible, unspeakable groans. His pleading is is more intimate than anything we could ever begin to comprehend. There in verse 27, it says plainly, the Spirit intercedes for us, the saints, according to God's will. Even when we don't know what to pray for, even in those times when we pray with selfish, impure motives, the Spirit is interceding for us. Imagine what comfort, what assurance. Even when I don't know what to pray, my my concerns are being taken before God's throne of grace by the Holy Spirit. He's the paraclete. He is the helper who stands by my side and pleads my case before God's throne of grace. We come to a a very important passage. Romans 8, verse 28. The ESV says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Sometimes this passage is translated, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. Or it's translated, in all things God works for the good of those who love Him. In those troubled times, In those times when we're suffering, how often do we recite those words to one another? In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. And while there are textual variations here, the point is always the same. Even though what we see, even though the things that are happening around us seem bad, even though our lives might not be all that it should be, There is nothing, nothing can can threaten our status as Christian people. We are children of God. 
And our inheritance is absolutely certain. And it's all because of God's love for us. And because He loves us, He will work all things out for our good. Is that another one of those platitudes, or do you really believe that? When things are really going bad in your life, God really working for your good? Does this passage ever make you feel uneasy? Because it says all things work together for good to those who love God. And that could make you feel uneasy because it seems to say that things are going to work out only for those who love God. Do you love God? Are you sure that you love God? Is, is maybe that the reason why things aren't working out so well? Because you don't love God enough? And if you just loved Him a little bit more, if you showed Him a little bit more, things will work out? I watch some of the things going on on, on TV, the, the radio preachers who are saying, well, God will make it all work out. You just send in your seed, and, and God will bless that seed, and God will provide you with all that you need. See, there is a trap, because it just isn't so. It would make it all dependent upon you and me. It would be dependent on our love for God. But St. Paul set us all straight. All things work together for good for those who have been called according to God's purpose. It's not about what we do. It's all about what God has done for us. All things work together for the good of those who have been called according to God's purpose. And we know what God's purpose is. God would have all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. It is God's will to always bless you. It is His good and gracious will. And so Paul's point here is that God has done absolutely everything necessary for our salvation. You can be absolutely confident. There's no condemnation for you. You are a child of God. You are an Easter person. You are a co-heir with Christ. And God keeps working in your life, even in those times when you can't see, when you can't understand, when you don't know. Spirit is there helping you, bringing all your concerns before God's throne of grace. Well, I need to stop today because I see that we've got some special guests coming in. But um, I was talking with Pastor Smith the other day, and he was talking about how much he's looking forward to getting back to teaching, especially the last part of chapter 8 and leading us into chapter 9. It's one of his favorite passages of Scripture. So whatever questions you might have, save them for Pastor Smith. He'll be back with us next week. (laughs) And now it's my pleasure to step to the side Remember, here's the test. What is today's date? April 18th, 2021. Keep that in mind. God bless you. Back in 2017, our church celebrated the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, and it was certainly a big deal. October 31st, 2017, was the anniversary of the nailing of Luther's 95 Theses on the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany. This event kicked off the Reformation movement led by Martin Luther. In that anniversary year, the famous here I stand phrase was often used in celebration with good reason. It is important to note, however, that the famous here I stand statement was made by Martin Luther at the Diet of Worms, April 18th, 1521. This is where he courageously took a stand against the emperor and the pope to support Holy Scripture instead 
of church tradition 500 years ago today. This historic moment was not the beginning of the Reformation, but perhaps the climax and high point of the Reformation. This brave statement solidified the movement that would forever separate Protestants from the Roman Catholic Church. This was monumental for the future of the Christian Church, as well as a seismic event in world history. Today, we would like to reenact that famous historic moment for the Lutheran Church, the Christian Church, and the world. In 1521, Luther had been called to appear before the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V and high church officials in the German city of Worms. He would be asked in this high-pressure moment where his life hung in the balance if he would recant or take back his controversial writings. The Catholic High Inquisitor Johann Eck was to put Luther on the spot and get him to recant. It was not designed to be a debate, and Luther was not to explain himself, but only to answer the question and either fade into obscurity or make a bold stand and risk punishment by the church as a heretic. His very life was certainly in great jeopardy. After asking for one day to pray and carefully consider his answer, he returned on April 18th to face his fate. Here is that dramatic moment in the history of our church. Silence. Silence in the hall. Martin Luther, are you the author of these writings? They are all mine. Do you recant what you have written here? I cannot recant all of my writings since they are not all on the same subject. Some of my writings are such simple descriptions of life and faith that even my opponents have agreed that they're useful. You're not here to make speeches. You will not draw into doubt those things the Catholic Church has judged already. Things that have passed into usage, right, and observance. You try in vain to get a disputation over things that you are obligated to believe. You have had one day to consider. Now you must answer. Do you recant? Yes or no? Since your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply, I will answer. Unless I am convinced by scripture and by plain reason, not by popes and councils who have so often contradicted themselves, my conscience is captive to the word of God. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. I cannot and I will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. All right, fast forward about 500 years. We're back to the future now. And I am, my name is Dan Sterling. I teach at the school here. I teach history and religion. So our, our seventh graders learn about the Reformation in some great detail. Um, so it's good to be here with you today. I'm also a big fan of large anniversaries, 50-year anniversaries, 100-year anniversaries, but 500 is very cool because to beat 500, you've got to have 1,000. And I don't plan to be here for the 1,000th anniversary of anything, I don't think. Um, so 1517 was certainly the beginning of this movement, and it's a big deal, no doubt. 
But in 1521, 500 years ago, this very day, kind of was the climax, kind of was the rising action. Here, Luther gets himself in deep trouble and is declared an outlaw heretic. But the Reformation is now, perhaps, unstoppable. So please interrupt me at any time with questions. I would enjoy questions. Um, if there's something you want me to cover, um, and I'll repeat the questions so everybody hears, so don't uh, worry about that. So the Diet of Worms, certainly not a new, trendy, high-protein weight loss plan. That was the joke when we were kids, you know. Um, but it was an imperial meeting of great impact. And the emperor was there, and high church officials were there, the princes of Germany were there, and Luther's statement was a major, major statement. It was a huge commitment. The movement was now in high gear, and he was very likely risking his life in a very serious way. So what happens next? Duke Frederick, Prince Frederick, Frederick the Wise, all the same guy, uh, was a powerful man in Saxony, Germany, and he had secured safe conduct for Luther to Worms, to this meeting, and back home to Wittenberg because he wasn't safe outside of Wittenberg, so the prince secured him safe conduct. But after his famous heretical statement, he wasn't safe, and the church was not going to honor that safe conduct and so on his way back to Wittenberg, he was captured by bandits. And he was probably thinking his life was going to end in moments, but it was actually bandits sent by Duke Frederick to nab him first and to take him to safety. And you might know some of this story. Many, many of you probably know a lot about this story. He was carried off to the castle Wartburg so that the church officials couldn't track him down. For his own safety, Duke Frederick kind of saved his life. So he was in the Castle Wartburg for 10 months. And while he was in the Castle Wartburg, he translated the New Testament into German, the, the language of the people. Um, the New Testament was his first goal, not because it was shorter, but because that's what the Catholic Church had been misleading people in the terms of the gospel and salvation and grace so he wanted the German people to be able to read the Bible for themselves in German. Something I didn't realize until I was much older and studied this much more is that that was a major provocation to the Roman Catholic Church. I didn't realize how much the Catholic Church feared the Bible being in the hands of the common people. It was political. The Roman Catholic Church wasn't just religious. They were the political control. You had God then the Pope, then kings and emperors after that. So it was a political thing. They had to maintain control over the people, and the way they controlled the people was through the, the means of grace and church and all that stuff. If the people could read the Bible for themselves, they might come up with their own interpretations of what Scripture meant, and the church would be less useful. It kind of reminds me of the Sanhedrin and the... Pharisees and um, Caiaphas, the high priest, they feared the same political thing with Jesus. They didn't want people listening to Jesus because then they didn't have control over their population. The Catholic Church feared the same thing. While he was in hiding in the castle, they dressed him like a, like a knight. He grew out his hair and a beard. They called him Junker George. If anybody saw him, he would be Junker George. He was still in hiding. That castle's still there, the Castle Wartburg, and uh, some say that there's still an ink stain on the wall where he hurled his ink vial while having one of his famous battles with Satan. And some say they can still see that on the wall there. It's a big tourist attraction. While Luther was gone, his followers sort of misunderstood the movement, and they started what was called the Great Leveling, and they attacked churches and beat priests and desecrated, you know, Catholic monuments and things like that. And that was going to lead to the Peasants' War. And the Peasants' War would end up killing about 100,000 German peasants. So Luther felt like he had to go back. He had to go back 
and let people know that this was not a battle against Roman Catholicism. It was a battle for the truth of Scripture. So he went back, risking his life, um, but he was protected now by Duke Frederick. The people were on his side. He was very popular. And I always tell my students the Renaissance kind of saved his life. The fact that people were willing to listen to something new, new science, new different disciplines, but new religious thought. People were ready for something new. And so it wasn't as easy to kill Luther as it had been to kill Jan Hus a hundred years before. Jan Hus was a church, a church a priest who basically said what Luther said. You're saved by grace, not works. And he was burned at the stake. The Dark Ages kind of killed John Hus. The Renaissance, in a way, saved Martin Luther. And of course, the Middle Ages, sometimes called the Dark Ages, of course, because of all the knights. Anyway, just got to make sure you're all awake there. Um, so, the next big thing in this timeline is in 1530, the Augsburg Confession. So come back in nine years and we'll do this again with the Augsburg Confession. Luther was not allowed to go to Augsburg because it wasn't safe. He was still in jeopardy of being nabbed by Roman officials and Catholic officials, so he sent his trusted aide, Philip Melanchthon, who wrote the Augsburg Confession in consultation with Luther and other reformers. And that year, 1530, was a really big year in the Reformation because that's the moment when the princes of Germany stood up to the emperor and said, we're going to keep our doctrine, we're going to preach this new gospel, and we're not going to be Roman Catholic anymore. At that moment, the Reformation was sort of established for good, and there was no, no turning back. Um, I think it's neat that we can do this in this class on Romans. You've been learning about Romans, and uh, Romans has so much meat to it, and Romans is really the book that was the key for Martin Luther. During his famous tower experience, when he still doubted how to get to heaven and he still was clinging to works righteousness, he found the passage in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, that I'm sure you've heard a number of times that talks about, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And it concludes with, you know, the, the righteous shall live by faith. And Luther says that's the passage that unlocked his understanding and gave him the knowledge that, it wasn't an, that God was not an angry judge, but he was a loving father. And from that moment on, he understood grace in a way that he never understood before. I like to tell my seventh graders, who know their doctrine pretty well, that they know about grace and salvation better than Luther did at that same age. When Luther was that age, he didn't get it. He, he was trying to earn God's favor and scared to death of God's judgment. After he studied Romans, he understood grace. He understood that his sins were taken by Christ. And, you know, the, I, the, the here I stand thing is certainly famous, and I can do no other. But my favorite line in Luther's bold statement is, my conscience is captive to the word of God. That's why you guys are in Bible study. Thank God for that, because hopefully as Christians, our conscience is captive to the word of God. Not what society says, not what some church tradition says, but the word of God. Okay? I like to think that we are living in a time, a kind of a modern here I stand moment, where Christians worldwide, especially in the United States, have to stand up boldly against society and what society tells us is right and wrong. Society has certainly kind of turned sideways. And even our churches, even our churches are bending to the trend of the day or the, the new thing that everybody is, is all excited about. And there's churches that are compromising their faith and their trust in Scripture. Uh, one of the things I love about the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod is that we've always resisted that since 500 years ago that we don't compromise on the Word of God, that, you know, true righteousness is what the Bible says, not what society says. Uh, there's a term I hear sometimes, moral relativism, that what we think is moral, what we think is right, what we think is godly, depends on the mood 
of the people and depends on the politics and depends on, you know, what people have changed their opinion on this or that. But the Bible's been around for 2,000 years. 500 years ago, Luther said, I'm going to stick to the Bible. My conscience is captive to the Word of God, and that's what's going to direct this movement. And so the Reformation is certainly not just a historical thing. It's something that's with us today, that we stand firm, that we uh, boldly proclaim what Luther proclaimed 500 years ago, um, what Lutherans have been proclaiming since. And so we're called upon, I think, by God to stand firm and do nothing else but trust in his, in his word. Um, just from a historical perspective, I got a couple magazines. Um, the year was like 1999. We were about to go into the new millennium, Y2K and all that stuff. And Time Magazine and Life Magazine put out a special issue kind of remembering the last thousand years. And they ranked the top historical events in that thousand year period of time, from 1,000 to 2,000. The number one ranked event by Life Magazine was the invention of the printing press. That's an odd one, but if you think about it, that's a big deal. And it's also not a coincidence, in my opinion, that the printing press was invented in Germany, right before Luther's time. Hmm, interesting. The second most important historical event they listed was the discovery of America by Christopher Columbus, which changed the entire globe. Number three, this is Life magazine, not some Christian publication, said that the third most important event in the millennium was the Lutheran Reformation, or the Reformation. Because it didn't just change our church, it changed the world. It caused a hundred years of warfare, for one thing. It took Roman Catholics and tore them their grip away from Europeans and, and the world. Um, in the Time Magazine issue, they list the top ten people of the last thousand years, and Luther's one of them. There's another uh, listing of the top ten quotes in a thousand years. And of course, you know, Neil Armstrong's quotes there, and FDR's quote, and Martin Luther King's quote, and Martin Luther King's Here I Stand quote. In Time Magazine is listed as one of the most important quotes, and he's listed as one of the most important people, and the Reformation is listed as one of the most important events in a thousand year period of time. Uh, one of my little pet peeves is that other Christian churches don't seem to recognize the impact of the Reformation as much as the Lutheran Church does. But it's not just a Lutheran thing. It's a Christian thing. It's a historical thing. So what happened 500 years ago today is, is pretty significant. So um, I'd like to close with a prayer unless there are questions. Yes, sir. Thank you. The question was, what's the Catholics' response to this? What was the Catholics' response to this 500 years ago? And moving forward, that's a, that's a big question. I don't have time to really get into all that. I'm not an expert on all of that, but I can tell you this. The Catholic Church has been reformed in some ways because of this Reformation. The, the Catholics did change some of their practices. They stopped selling indulgences and promising that it gave them forgiveness. They still do sell indulgences, but it's, it's changed a little bit. I would say that the Catholic Church didn't reform like Luther wanted them to reform. But they sat down and looked themselves in the mirror and said, what are some of these abuses that maybe Luther had a point? There was a couple of cardinals that were trying to silence Luther who kind of privately understood that he had a point. And so the Catholic Church kind of was reformed in some ways. Luther himself was still an outlaw. The, the edict from Worms actually said, anybody can kill Luther at any time and will not be punished. So for the rest of his life, he had to lay low and stay in Saxony most of the time. So the Catholics didn't give up. But because of his popularity and because of the movement, they couldn't just steal him away in the middle of the night and kill him. The, the reaction of that would have been too severe. So the emperor was worried about that. The pope was worried about that. Um, but I think there was uh, a response in the Catholic Church. Now, you'd have to ask some of our Catholic friends you know, what they think about the Reformation. Uh, there was a program on TV just a few years back during the 1517 celebration, 2017, 
and there was a, a really neat program about Luther, and they actually interviewed some Roman Catholic bishops who had some really interesting things to say about Luther's impact, and it was complimentary things. They weren't saying Luther's this is a big loudmouth that we ignore. So I think the Catholics have come around in some regards to respect Luther a little bit more. They're not celebrating the Reformation, I don't think, but they're not quite to that point. But that's a great question. Um, there's more to that answer, I'm sure. Anyone else? The best version of which book? The Bible? Well, we like the ESV version because they, they go back to the original Greek. If I had more time, I would tell you some things that the Roman Catholics had wrong because their version of the Bible was in Latin. And Luther went back to the Greek and found some curious differences between repent and grace and things like that. So the translation of the Bible was part of the misunderstanding. That's a good question. Anyone else? Yes, ma'am. All right. The, the comment was that after watching that Luther movie, some Catholics agree that, that Luther is right. One of my wife's uncles is still Catholic and will be Catholic till the day he dies, but he attends a Lutheran church. And he understands, you know, um, I don't want to besmirch Catholics too much here, but I, I know a lot of Catholics who don't really necessarily agree with all Catholic doctrine. They sometimes agree more with the Roman Catholics, or with the Lutherans. Um, my wife's brother, who's a pastor, sometimes jokes that we're the true Catholics. We're the true universal church. But um, Anyone else? All right, I don't know if I'm over time or not, or just about right. Yes? That's a great question. Um, I don't know exactly how to answer that. I think there were... His friends and his followers that were praying that he would say the right thing. In one of the Luther movies, there's his friend Ulrich. I don't know if he's a historically accurate character or not, but he's up in the balcony praying, please help him say the right thing. Please help him say the right thing. But to that friend, I think he meant, don't say anything that gets you in trouble. And when Luther said what he said, he was probably like, oh no, you didn't say the right thing. But he prayed to God say the right thing, and he did. So God answered that prayer in a way that that friend didn't expect. Uh, there were princes there at that meeting that were his supporters. There were, of course, Roman Catholic officials that wanted him to not say one more word. So he had some friends in the room. He had some enemies in the room. Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, was very young. He was 21. He had just taken office as the Holy Roman Emperor, and he was unsure of himself. Later, in 1530, at the Augsburg Confession, he would be more determined to stamp out the Reformation, but he got kind of ganged up on by all the princes. So in that room, he had some supporters, he had some friends, he had some enemies. I think there were people who thought that he might not back down. There were people hoping he would back down so that he wouldn't be killed. There were other people maybe hoping he wouldn't back down so that the word would be proclaimed boldly. Um, great question. All right, I think we're going to be running out of time, so let's close with a word of prayer, please. Dear Lord, may we continue to walk in the footsteps of a bold confession from our Lutheran forefathers. May we, as the Lutheran Church, confess you, O Lord, with a plain, confident, clear, and cheerful voice. Here we stand. We can do nothing else. Lord, in your mercy, help us and hear our prayer. Amen. Thank you so much for your attention and your questions.